Welcome to the show. Here's my dad. On this episode of the Infant Adoption Guide podcast, we talk about the book Do Right by Me, Learning to Raise Black Children in White Spaces with authors Katie D'Angelo and Valerie Harrison. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Infant Adoption Guide podcast. My name is Tim Elder. I'm a dad of three through infant adoption, and this is where you get inspiration, resources, hope to start your venture that you're thinking about 24-7. That is building your family through adoption, infant adoption, and thank you so much for joining me today. We have a great show. Our guests on the show today are Val and Katie. Val has a a law degree and a doctorate in African-American studies. She's an attorney and educator. She served as acting president of Lincoln University, which is the first degree-granting historically black college or university in the U.S. And she also wrote a book prior to this one, which is called Color Him Father, Stories of Love and Rediscovery of Black Men, which published in 2006. So I invite you to go check that out as well. Katie holds a doctorate degree in education, and she and her husband are white adoptive parents raising a biracial son. And Katie and her husband confront head-on the reality that they would need to equip their son for an experience far more complex than anything they had experienced. And I just love having them both on the show today. They're good friends. You can tell it in their conversations. You can tell it in the book when you get the book. Uh, great friends that really understand each other and and work uh, together to help be the most positive influence for Gabe and it's just a, an amazing and an inspirational story inside the book. And I know you're going to get a lot out of this interview. And I recommend you go get it at dorightbyme.org. Or you can get it on Amazon. And we'll have links in the show notes to go get the book. Highly, highly recommend it. Let's get in the interview right now with Val and Katie. All right. Welcome, Val and Katie, to the show. How are you all doing today? We are well. Well, yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank good. you for having us. Oh, good. Thank you for both for agreeing to come on the show. I got your book. Thank you for sending me the book. And this is just going to be a fabulous discussion because it's so important. And I've had other topics or other discussions about transracial adoption, but you all bring a different perspective to this. And you wrote the book on it. So uh, I can't wait to get into this uh the, your story and just why you wrote the book and all those questions surrounding uh, transracial adoption that you cover inside the book so well. So I want to just start with uh, of Katie. Well, actually, both of you can jump in, but Katie, if you would start uh, sharing your story, just what, like what led you and your husband to adoption and then how Gabe's adoption took place. Sure. Um, and, and right off the bat, I can say um, this is just this is such a gift of an opportunity. I'm so grateful that you've invited us um, and that you've read the book um, that <laughs> I, I have to be honest, like that just is, it's so heartwarming, but it's just such an honor when people take the time uh, to read uh, and, you know, and take wherever it meets you in your, in your own journey. But, you know, we have an enormous appreciation for your work, Tim and, uh, just creating this space for parents who, not unlike my husband, Mike and I, um, you know, there were so many things we had no idea how much we did not know when, <laughs> when we began this journey. Um, and, you know, again, for years, 
we had tried to grow our family of two um, by, you know, welcoming a child. We were not sure probably for the first 10 years of our marriage, we had no idea that um, that the parenthood journey would lead us to adoption. But what an incredible, gracious gift that that has become. And so, you know, the process the process for us was particularly um, special because we learned not only so much about um, ourselves, I should say, through the process, um, but really, I think for most for most parents who are beginning this process, you know, just that whole process of self awareness and and the journey to understanding, well, what are your motivations and who are you and who would you be as a parent? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, just it, that the, the journey to that decision is pretty powerful in and of itself. And so that was where we started writing this book was just an understanding of, you know, when you're making that decision, you have no idea how much you don't know and you think you are ready for something, but then, you know, opening yourself up to the wisdom of people, um, whether that's family or friends to say what is required. So the motivation for us and and then for this book really became my son, Gabriel. Um, Gabriel is our nine-year-old, soon to be 10, which blows my mind. <laughs> Gabriel, um, you know, he is a biracial child. He was adopted from birth. Um, and Mike and I are both white parents. And so, you know, unlike parents who buy into a colorblind or a post-racial ideology, Mike and I had to confront head on the reality that we would need to equip our son for an experience far more complex than anything we had experienced in our lifetime. Um, and very fortunately, I was not alone. So, you know, even before we knew about Gabriel, Val and I were in frequent and deep conversations about all that would be necessary to parent a child of a different race. And so, you know, knowing Val, this was really more than her sowing her wisdom into me. It was the beginning of her sowing wisdom into our future family. Um, so what a gift that was. But, you know, as I said, the, the process really turned out to be a lot more than writing a book. It was I hope it reflects our own process of self-discovery and developing relationships. Um, and actually, maybe that's the right time to hand off to Val to talk a little bit more about our relationship. Yes. Um, you know, Tim, Katie and I had been friends for 20 years, right? Almost 20 years um, before Gabe was born. And so we had engaged in... Um, conversations like any, like any friend group does about everything from, you know, philosophical conversations about race, because I am black, Katie is white. And so, um, so organically, we had this space for conversations um, about race, but they were really philosophical or really more academic, you know, in nature, you know, Katie has a doctorate in education. I have a doctorate in African-American studies. So, you know, we, we do the academic thing for fun, right? Which is weird, but I mean, you know, we think we're funny and, and that it's, but it's probably strange to other people, but I mean, that's how we kind of, we have fun debating issues and, and talking about scholarship and that kind of thing. And so we would do that for many years, but you know, um, when Gabe was born, you know, um, the game changed and the stakes mm -hmm. grew from the two of us engaged in sort of these philosophical conversations to a white mother 
trying to raise um, a black child in a white space, right? And um, Katie and Mike wanted more than nothing to parent well. And we learned, as I would go um, to different conferences and speak at different places, white women were more increasingly coming up to me and they had adopted black children, um, daughters mainly, and they would have all kinds of questions and concerns about everything. I mean, Tim, you know, the, the, the how to care for their daughter's hair, mm -hmm. how to affirm her body image, how to create a diverse community where black female achievement was the norm. You know, they recognized, you know, to, to be a thing, you have to see a thing, right? right. And so yeah. they were concerned about that. And so it was clear to me from Katie and from these women um, that they wanted so badly to parent well, but they had real questions, Tim, and real concerns about their ability to navigate racism, their ability to navigate culture, and their ability um, to foster a sense of positive racial identity. So we really wrote the book to try to help um, address those concerns. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in reading the book, and I, I saw somebody review this and said uh, something about it's like part history lesson, part telling your story, part practical <laughs> yes. guide, you know, yes. and, and, and it's a roadmap. And absolutely true. Uh, you guys walk it through so well. And I love the back and forth. If you, if you get the book, anybody that's <laughs> listening to this, get the book and you'll see the back and forth of how they each tell their sides of the story or, the, or their parts of the story. And then weaving there the history lesson and the things that you probably don't know. I know there's things in there I certainly didn't know. So, and growing up in a white neighborhood with a lot of white friends and white family members, same thing. I, I don't know this because I never was exposed to it. Yeah, so I right. think there's a lot of great stuff in there to learn. Um, and, and anybody that's listening to this, even if you're considering transracial adoption, you need, and you yeah. need to, you should get the yeah. book because that's really going to open your eyes to not only the history, but just how they went through it, how they yep. walked through it all. And it's really going to, I think, um, open a lot of people's eyes on transracial adoption. So I think you guys did a great job reading the book. That's an understatement. Uh, Thank you. Let's talk through through the, the book a little bit. And, and I think I described it a little bit there, but how would you describe like the main premise of the book or, or what you're trying to accomplish for the reader? You know, we, we wrote the book because, Tim, we were troubled by po possible outcomes mm -hmm. for, for black children when we failed to equip them with positive racial identity. And this, um, while our experiences with a biracial child, and um, I think that the principles um, are applicable in, in other um, transracial adoption contexts. Mm -hmm. Again, so while our focus is on um, black culture, for example, black history, for example, I think the principles are much broader. But here's what we knew. We knew that confusion about racial identity is linked to behavior problems and psychological distress for children. So we knew that. We, we knew that the brain science, and this was very important to Katie, told us that the pain from feeling like that you're less than or that you're excluded or that you're not really a part of the group and pain from being punched in the face or they share the same brain pathways. And so the pain from social exclusion causes real hurt to your body. You know, Katie tells a wonderful story about putting Gabe in a soccer league. He was the only black baby and no one looked like him. Everyone was white in, in, in the entire league. 
And, and the notion that the feeling, and not that people weren't being unkind to him because they weren't and they were trying to help him to fit in, but you know, people gravitate to those who they know or, mm -hmm. or like them. The notion that that experience could create physical pain was something that I think um, made this the urgency of this real for us. But then we also know that there are stereotype threats that hinder performance when when young people do not have a strong sense of racial pride. And so quickly, for example, you know, for black people, for example, we have been stereotyped as less capable intellectually. So black students in a predominantly white school, for example, will feel pressure that white students don't experience, right? Because they want to dispel the stereotype of this mm. intellectual inferiority. And so the extra pressure is a distraction. It depletes your energy. Um, and and it, it really it prevents you from really being focused. But the stereotype can't really attach to you if you understand both the history, that there's nothing wrong with you. You know, there is an unfortunate history that that has disadvantaged um, black individuals and communities. But understanding, again, what real blackness means, that that like other ethnic and racial groups, that black people um, led the world in scientific innovation and built great civilizations long before their presence um, in the United States. So so it's the difference between a black child understanding that their history didn't begin in 1619 mm -hmm. on a Virginia tobacco farm as 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 an enslaved person. But it began, you know, thousands and thousands of years before that on the continent of Africa. And so we help young people to understand that. So we realize that we needed to be intentional about helping families develop this positive racial identity so that our young people wouldn't um, really succumb to, to these negative outcomes like psychological problems, confusion, the physical pain from feeling excluded, but also stereotype threats that hinder their performance. And so that was really our motivation for the book, to equip families, um, to give them the tools and the resources to develop this in children so that their children can be, they can thrive, they can be all that they're capable of being. And I'll just jump in um, there because there's a, there's a couple things right out of the gate. You know, Kim, I love that you got the feeling that what you were reading was an exchange between two friends. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that has to be, it has to be one of the, um, there was a, a, another review, um, the broad Pamela Forsyth, I think, um, she reviewed the book in the Broad Street Review, and she said it's like listening in on a thought-provoking, fearlessly honest conversation between good, good friends. There you go. <laughs> and, That's it. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad that you know that you are saying that because um, you know one of the many privileges I've been afforded in my life is having Val's friendship. Um, you know, again. She um, she's sort of like the the double threat. She's both the JD lawyer and the PhD <laughs> in Africology, um, and so she you know she is this just naturally brilliant woman. But as a friend, she has completely taken me under her wing, and as a friend, taught me very gently. You know, she meets me where I am and engages me in conversation in a way that is not scary to me. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, right from the door, um, 
when we decided to write this book, you know, I recognize fully just the opportunities that I've had to learn right alongside of learning how to become a parent. You know, I've been able to learn a lot of other really important things. And, and by starting from this place of, you know, what do I need to learn? What do I need to learn? And what do I need to do to become the best parent to Gabriel? Mm-hmm. Um, having that goal as, you know, at the centerpiece, I think that helped to inform how we wrote because I sort of presumed that other parents, particularly other white parents who might be raising a child of another race, um, would have that same desire, right? Like what would be required of me? So, uh, when we first sat down and decided to write this book, we we maybe oversimplified in the sense that we knew that we wanted to write the story to connect to our personal experience, right? That we felt like we had some stories and experiences to share. Um, so we would anchor everything, every chapter in a story of, to reflect our personal experience, but then both Val and I working most of our professional careers in higher ed, we also recognize the privilege that comes with being surrounded by research and scholarship on a regular basis, right? So how do we make that research and scholarship more accessible to other people uh, who, who don't have that, you know, um, at their fingertips? And then, you know, the, the practical side to this, okay, now I know this information, so what can I do with it? You know, how could I apply this in my everyday life? And so, you know, even as Val's talking about the, the really key pieces that we felt were important, what, what would we want to share? And for me specifically, what do I wish I would have known? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, maybe at least a little bit before <laughs> I was thrust into the experience, you know, the real life, real time experience. Um, and so hopefully that's what we've we've um, sort of served up and, and hopefully offered to a reading audience is to say, you know, let's let's help others sort of benefit and maybe get ahead of or in front of some things that they will probably be faced or wish they would have um, understood a little bit more deeply or personally before, you know, they had to sort of cope with it and think about it from the lens of either being a parent or a teacher or a coach or an administrator or a minister. Um, you know, hopefully we made it more accessible um, to other people in that way. Absolutely. I think you nailed it right there. Uh, you made it more accessible and, and very an easy read because you guys, or you could tell you're such good friends just by, oh, good. <laughs> on, on how you've, yeah, on how you wrote the book together. And, and then I love the, at the back of the book, I mean, you wrote tons of notes of, of throughout the book and you referred to them in the back. And then also the further reading, reading is just great. When you talk about the talk, which I had never knew about or heard of before. And I, I want to, if you could talk about that uh, briefly, what does the talk mean and how, how can you relate that to somebody listening to this who maybe has never heard of that when it comes to raising a black child? Mm-hmm. Katie, had you heard of the talk be as a child, as a young person growing up, you know, I don't know if I know the answer. Not as a young person growing up, I can tell you, I did not know and had not heard about the talk 
honestly until uh, we lost Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. Really? That, okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so what we try to to talk about, uh, Tim, and in, in the the book is, and this goes back to a general premise of the book, and part of the reason for the back and forth as well. I, I think, and we think that, um, for many. Um, of, of, of our white friends and colleagues and, 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 and members of our community, many believe that their worldview, which is a European worldview, which is, which is, is, is what they have inherited, is universal mm-hmm. and it's standard. One thing that we're trying to, to convey through the book is that Gabe has been a light. You know, we talk about Gabriel um, in, in, in terms of sacred texts and Gabriel being a figure that sort of illumines um, things for people that he has, he, he, he showed many people in our community, again, that a European worldview and Katie's worldview in the moment was one among many. You know, it's not always the wisest and it's only one perspective. Mm. And we think that that was a rich understanding. Katie has a wonderful line in the book that says, and my worldview wasn't doing me any good in the situation that I was in, <laughs> right? Because her concept of family, for example, was if you don't have um, um, a husband, um, if you don't have a biological child, you did not have family. And so, mm. but now an African worldview is, is, is much larger and broader than that. And so she began to, to understand that there were different worldviews. And so also there are different experiences. So when I was a kid in elementary school, we would have assemblies. They bring you into the assembly. This was in the 60s during a time um, when um, government action against black organizations that were seeking equity um, turned violent very often. Um, You know, the death of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and others who were advocating for racial justice. So it was a part of our life, right? So they would bring us in and there would be police officers from our community who would tell us how to act if we had an encounter with the police in a way that could keep us safe, recognizing that there were stereotypes and images, distorted and imbalanced images of black people that were on TV and the media everywhere in conversation that impacted the way police responded to us and that they would respond to us differently. And so that as a black little girl, I had to understand that even if I didn't do anything and I wasn't a threat to a police officer, he saw me differently than he would see Katie. And so they then put the burden on us as children to act in a way that minimized the risk of, mm-hmm. of, of danger for us. And this was a regular part. And your parents would tell you when you went out. Um, we have a line in the book. One of our friends, he shared his mother's line was, you know, walk like you have somewhere to go. You know, <laughs> you, you can't sort of lollygag. You don't have the privilege of making mistakes that, that, that your white colleagues and, and friends have. You have to understand that. Katie writes in the book, you know, as a teenager, she, she could do what she wants. I mean, she can engage in road rage or she could, she could, you know, engage in behavior that, that, you know, was sort of juvenile and a mistake. You could smoke a joint. You could get drunk and act silly and, and fight a cop. And do, you can do all of that. And, and people would say you're young and it's part of the growing process. For black children, we did not have that option. It could result in actually a fatal encounter. And so we were taught that and um, from the beginning. And so now it has become more broadly understood and known outside of the black community. And it, it's been given sort of the coined the term, the talk. But it's something that we always did from the beginning of time, recognizing 
again, um, that we're perceived differently because of this legacy of, of, of racism and it's perpetuated through images and other things. And so therefore you, it, it, again, it, it, um, what bother, I think, Katie, you can jump in on this. It puts the onus on a child, though, mm, to right. manage an, an encounter with an adult, which made no sense to her, I think, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But Katie, I'll let you jump in on that. <laughs> but that is just something that has been part of our culture and history. And we try to explain that to parents who, who may have a child who, who may have to, to develop those skills. But Katie, I'll sure. let you grab it. Yeah. And I um, it. It didn't make sense to me then, and it still doesn't make sense to me now. Um, but the, but it is very much our truth, and it's um, it's very much how um, we've we've sort of pivoted. And in the research for this book, I remember going back to and the, um, in addition to the book, I would also encourage folks to check out the website dorightbyme.org um, because you know, we really stand on the shoulders of so much work that's, you know, so many things that have been in film and writing and art. And, you know, there um, so many of these conversations have began, you know, hundreds of years ago. But when I started looking specifically on the topic of the talk, you know, I, I would hear sort of the tension of um, people who would resist giving the talk to their parents. And one of the reasons which made a lot of sense to me, uh, and we actually mentioned this in that chap in this chapter of the book, and that is um, rather than, you know, feeling any level of sadness or concern that I as a white parent might have to have the talk with my black child, I, you know, I, I really want to force and drive the issue of, I want to know why parents aren't having this, the talk with their white child, because, you know, the, the more we make this conversation divisive that a child, a black child by virtue of the color of their skin has to be prepared and more thoughtful and more conscientious than the adult in many of these situations, I still, you know, continue to wrestle with. And so you know, my my position is all of us as adults need to be the adult and understand what is breaking down in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our systems um, that, you know, that sort of implies or constantly puts the burden on the child, the, the child of color to be um, the one who gets themselves safely out of a situation. So you know, as Val points out, it, it was hard to even think about writing some of the chapters of these books without coming, you know, face to face with the fact that, you know, for both me and my husband, Mike, we have nearly never had to consider how someone else felt about us, right? That's that's part of that privilege of being, you know, the white universal experience in in this country. And so, you know, as even as Gabe now approaches double digits, right? He's going to be 10 soon. Um, and as he approaches double digits, that also means he's edging further from cute in a white person's eyes. Right, right. And I, you know, that makes me grow increasingly anxious about how do I, as a white mother, prepare him 
knowing that my desire to insulate him in my privilege will misguide him, right? As he faces the challenges um, for him ahead. So, you know, arguably every parent wants to protect their child from discomfort. Um, however, Gabriel is going to have to regularly endure a range of situations because of the color of his sin, of his skin. And I've never, you know, I will never have known it. And um, it's hard for me to imagine preparing him for something that, you know, I'm going to be preparing him for based on no experience that I've had. So those, you know, the often daily indignities that are will range um, from questions like, why do you talk white? you know, to the, the guaranteed encounter with a white woman who's going to clutch her purse um, or lock her car doors just at the sight of him. You know, in each of those cases, my son, the child, will be responsible for making the adult feel comfortable and getting out of the situation safely. Um, and so, you know, really, we, I feel like we, we, talk about and maybe prepare for the chapter. You know, we put the chapter on the talk later in the book and a lot for a lot of reasons, but I think, you know, you have to have a lot of the foundation that I hope we build up to. Um, that's the know. key. That's what I think the key is. We're hoping, Tim, that we, we have helped families understand where in the world did that come from, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. that's, while, while chapter two and chapter three can be dense, I think, you know, in terms of history, I think if, if they understand that, you know, slave and people generally know about slavery and Jim Crow, mm -hmm. but oppression and inferior treatment, it was, but it continues to be justified and fueled by portraying black people as inferior and dangerous. And then you convey those images in as many outlets as possible. So if you portray a group's members as savage and dangerous, it's easier to justify savagery, right? And mm -hmm. violence against them. It's more difficult to connect and empathize with the group's members. And some in the contemporary media still play a role in perpetuating those negative um, images, you know? And and so what, what Katie now gets, she watches the news differently, right? She, <laughs> she guards Gabe from negative or distorted yeah. or imbalanced images of black people that create a perception of blackness that is negative. And so because of these images, you know, we, we in the research we have in the book shows that white people are more likely to shoot an unarmed black male than an unarmed white male. Because again, most of us have been saturated with images which create an impression um, about black people and black people's behavior. And so we try to give readers a history and an understanding of that context so that you view the news a little bit differently, so that you you understand the danger in images and stories um, and media and music and movies um, that, that contain distorted or imbalanced images of black people and how that plays out in real life and how that then necessitates having the talk um, with black children. Wow, that's very a well lot. said. Yeah, you're like, a lot. That's, that's yeah. A lot. You're like, okay, Val, that's a lot. No, I have you know what? Something a little bit lighter, right? Okay. No, no. You know what? That what that did for me, and the reason I say wow is because you know after reading that part of the talk, the book, that chapter called the talk, and then just saying what you just said, it just kind of opened the things even more up to me. I think about 
why are we, you know, why even the necessary and putting the only onus on the, on the children really, why are we doing that? Why do we have to do that? And that's the things I think are not talked about well enough Mm -hmm. in this country. And the beauty of your book is it brings it out. I mean, racism in itself is so hard because people are afraid to say the wrong thing or, or I don't even know how to bring it up or do I bring it up or, you know, all those things. So this, I love, that's what I love about your book. You're opening it up. You're giving us uh, an opportunity to read and understand and kind of at least see what you all have, have gone through. But then even more of the history is opened up too, which I love that you put that part in the book. Cause I think that is important. It's not more than just telling your story. It's, Hey, here's yeah. the history <laughs> you can, yeah. and you document it so well that, uh, it, it's just, it's eye opening. So I think th- I love that part of the book. So parents listening to this, this is what I focus on. Somebody listening to this is either considering a transracial adoption or maybe they already have. And what I've, I say all the time to people is, you know, adoption doesn't stop when a child's placed with you. It starts. Yeah. And this is what I love you guys talk about in your book so well. I mean, you talk about that first 36 months of Gabriel's life and you have that focus on him, you know, you're talking about foundation, you know, y'all, you built that up, you built it in him, you know, yeah. and you worked with him on that. And I love that part. And people listening to this uh, really need to focus on the fact that not just uh, when you're adopting, but after you're adopted, when that child's placed with you, what are you going to do? I think Katie, you said that earlier, what are you going to do? Practically, yeah. what are you going to do? And that's just not, not what you just say, not just how you act, but who yeah. you surround yourself with. Yes, can exactly. You, can you talk about that a little bit, like who you surround yourself with and why it's important and, and maybe how you guys have done that? One of the fundamental principles that Val said to me, taught me, and, and we talk about this in the book, is that, you know, as soon as Gabriel was born, She said, okay, come on, Katie, we know the research, we know the scholarship, the first 36 months of life are critical, Hmm. no matter who the child is, right? You just, you know, to use Val's words, we're just going to love on him and we are going to, you know, just shower him with attention and support and encouragement. And um, so no matter who the child is, those first 36 months are everything. Um, and I, why Val's laughing is because I now tease her because, you know, you, Gabriel's confidence and his poise and his ease in pretty much any situation is such that I will always, you know, if he, um, if he is feeling perhaps overly confident in a situation, <laughs> which, you know, happens. I'll, which happens, right? I mean, I give her a side eye and I'm like, Oh, I think we, Oh, I think you overdid it in the first 36 months. Aunt Vival. Like, <laughs> Cause he has comfort and ease and confidence for days. But you know, some of those fundamental principles that are just, you know, they're there, but, but every single day, you know, it's a matter of, are we curating thoughtfully and carefully the media images that our son has access to? Mm, I mean, just yeah. for, you know, for anyone listening to your podcast, like all of us have a part to play in terms of curating what information, you know, gets across and gets through to children. I mean, the ability for kids to be engaged in technology, right? I mean, the access to information 
that they have today versus when we were all growing up is extraordinary, right? And so, you know, part of that for us has been becoming a parent that is keenly aware of how much information is available to our son um, and that we have to we have to thoughtfully curate, you know, positive images of black identity, right? Positive images in regard um, for young men. Um, I mean, it's everything from, you know, it's everything from what they watch maybe and, and what they can see, but also knowing that when your child comes home from school, they now have been engaged with kids who their parents might be setting up very different parameters for what they can have. Yep. So yep. even the questions that a child will come home asking um, and and the range is certainly there. It's everything from how a different household is processing what's happening in, in the political realm, you know, what's happening in current events, what's happening um and even I, we might have talked about the three of us might have talked about this a while ago. But one of the first interviews that Val and I gave um, was with Marty Moscowane on Radio Times. And that that radio interview was scheduled for January 12th, um, way before January 6th happened. And so, you know, Radio Times being part of a of NPR News media outlets the day before our scheduled interview her producer wrote reached out to val and i and said hey there's going to be you know uh the washington correspondent is going to do a, a 19 minute update on the insurrection at the capitol that happened last week and so to pivot from that news update into talking about do right by me you know how comfortable are you talking about how you've prepared your child for conversations around white supremacy and the insurrection at the nation's capital. I mean, wow. Like there's a pivot. <laughs> I never thought I was going to be asked <laughs> to true. make in my lifetime. <laughs> so, I mean, that's sort of an extreme example, but you know, every, every day, every week, you know, what, what, um, you're sort of called to and sort of the occasions and dialogue that you have to be ready to engage in. They're not always going to be comfortable and they sure are not going to be easy. And I think any parent or teacher or coach, as I said, it is confronted constantly with things that they never thought in a million years they'd be asked <laughs> to consider. And so, you know, I think parenting in general is a constant exercise in that, but very specifically, you know, every day being conscious and conscientious about what do you need to be reading and watching and learning and exploring to build up that beloved community um, and the right community that surrounds your child. The, the 36 months is interesting. And, and someone said something to Katie and me. We did an interview um, maybe last week or a couple weeks ago. She, they said something that I don't think we ever thought about. And, and the reason that we were so intent on the 36 months is because we know um, that the world will not always affirm Gabe um, and yeah. the world will not always make him feel special. Um, so it, particularly when you see, for example, messages that are cloaked in racism, like we saw during the insurrection, 
that doesn't make a black child feel special mm-hmm. or, or it doesn't affirm you. And so we're like, we're going to give you enough. You're going to have enough stored up <laughs> that it's okay. You'll have enough. You'll have a <laughs> reservoir of, of affirmations to draw on to get yes. you through this life. And, and that was our thought. But the other thing that was interesting to us is how early the feelings of exclusion or inclusion happen. You know, Katie, um, and it did, I'm not the only black friend they have, and they have very close um, other friends. And one night we had this dinner, and there were Gabe, myself, and two other two of their black friends, and Katie and Mike, who were both white. And Gabe, he was a little guy, and he kept looking around the room, like he kept mm-hmm. looking around the table, and he just kept looking, like he was t- taking it in and. And I don't know, I don't know why I thought, well, he's not, he doesn't recognize anything, but he looked at me and he said, you know what, there are more. And then he paused and I knew what he was thinking. There are more black people at this table than white people. How fun is that? I mean, I know what he was thinking. And then he shifted. He said, there are more men than women. I'm like, okay, you're right. Okay. But it was, um, Katie and I were the only, only women there, but it was interesting how he was paying attention oh, yeah. to the dynamic in his home. Mm-hmm. This was his kitchen. This was his dining room table, his space. But he was kind of like, this is kind of cool mm-hmm. that that <laughs> his space reflected reflected him. And so part of the advice that we gave in addition to visiting museums, for example, Katie's, Katie and Mike, their, their vacation can easily be to go to the National Museum of of, of African and African-American history and culture in in Washington, D.C., but to also expose him to the best of African and African-American culture. So the music that they listen to in their homes, the artwork that is on their walls um, is reflective of of Black culture. And to be intentional about finding a league, finding a school, finding a church, finding a community um, where he's not the only one um, Mm -hmm. and that he can feel good about Black culture has been a priority for them. And we and, and it, it, we just think that, you know, some of the transracial adoptees say they wish that their parents just had those kind of resources, mm-hmm. just the knowledge. They think that it would have made a significant difference um, in their development. Well, and, and Tim, I want to jump in too, because I will say when we were first getting to know you, um, I, I listened to some of the podcasts specifically on the topic of transracial adoption. And you know, it's incredible to me, the some of the folks that you have interviewed who, you know, have gone on to lead agencies, you know, and work in the adoption field professionally, but that part of that was because they are adult transracial adoptees themselves. Mm. Yes. And, right? And so their experience in particular, and um, Chad Goler Sojourner, um, He's written extensively. Um, he is an adult transracial adoptee. Um, I think that he um, was born in Washington State, um, adopted by two white parents. And, you know, he has, as I said, written and spoken extensively on this topic because, you know, one of the struggles is, you know, that comes up time and time again is that, well, where we live, you know, we live in a really nice neighborhood. We have access to fantastic public schools. Um, you know, our church is really loving and embraces others. But the truth of the matter is, um, you know, you do have to take a step back and understand that 
that feeling of belonging and inclusion at such a young age begins as simply as, do I see myself reflected in the spaces that I'm in? Um, and, you know, we very intentionally um, titled, you know, sort of that, that secondary part to the title, Learning to Raise Black Children in White Spaces, is because I don't feel that this book is exclusively for white parents. I, you know, I think, you know, with all the research that we've done, we know that um, as Val started this conversation today, you know, we know that Black children do best when they are taught and nurtured and their whole life supports the idea that positive racial identity is everything. And when they feel positively about who they are um, and that identity and they see that reflected in teachers, right? That they look up and see teachers that look like them, coaches that look like them, neighbors that look like them, people leading in in churches that look like them, that that is, that's the beginning of belonging and inclusion for every child is to see themselves. Um, and we do quote um, Chad Guller, so Chad Guller Sojourner, sorry, I'm getting that tangled up. Um, but we we quote him a couple of times in the book. But one of the occasions is, you know, growing up, he says his his white parents did the very best that they could. You know, they they did have art and music available in their home and they you know, they they worked really hard to engage their children in conversation. They worked really hard to um, they had a further commute to take their child, drive their child to a school where there were more children and teachers that looked like them. But at the end of the day, he was 26 years old the first time he saw a black physician. And so, you know, again, these are they're just all the things that we have to consider and think about. And and I agree with Val. I mean, I think that we've tried to be really intentional about um, choices we've made in our own home, whether it's art on the wall, music that we listen to. Um, but, you know, I, my husband and I were both raised in the Catholic church and we have to make an effort. There are three African-American priests in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Now, I mean, you're talking about the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, I think is the second or third largest diocese. But I think there's about 275 parish communities in the archdiocese. Three are led by a black priest. So that right there will tell you, you know, that there there continues to be spaces where you you will not see yourself in some spaces. My son goes to incredibly well resourced private school, but not a single teacher, primary teacher. Um, is a person of color. Every teacher that he has had in his eight years at the school is a white woman. Um, and, and I think we have a very diverse school community. We live in a very diverse neighborhood and community. Um, however, the, you know, the, the teachers and staff at his school does not reflect that beautiful diversity. So and she lets them is. know it, Sam. Yeah, she I know. You wrote about it in the book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I told I told in an interview we did a couple weeks ago. I said, I know they can't wait until he graduates. Like, Get her out of here. She is, oh my goodness. I mean, you know, she she's giving it to him. And that's part of it. I mean, it that, is, that's yeah. part of 
you know, that's part of the advocacy we talk about. That's part yeah. of the strategy and the tools is is to be an advocate, um, you, you know, for, for your, your child. And, and so she does it well. She does it well. And, and you know, we thinking about this, you know, and, and I, I know some of the callers are like, well, how do you sort of develop these friendships? And, and so mm-hmm. we do try to help people understand um, the friendship and, and, and what we believe is central to the friendship is um, a level of humility, like a, a high level of humility. Um, because I think that this is not always easy stuff. And so we want to encourage and affirm your, your listeners. I am clearly more of an expert on being black than Katie. I have been this way for 58 years and I have a PhD in African-American <laughs> studies on top of that. So I can offer a perspective. I can offer my best mm-hmm. advice. But Katie is the shot caller. She is the parent. And my most important purpose is to be her biggest cheerleader. It is not to be dogmatic and to tell her what to do in every situation. You know, in the book, we try to really share even our battles. You know, our biggest mm-hmm. battle seems silly, but it's over his hair. I mean, that has been a sort of <laughs> the biggest battle. He now is nine and has a wonderful professional haircut that I love, you know, but that was a battle, Tim. But I mean, see, you Tim, know. you, Tim has read the book, so he knows. That's right. <laughs> yes. And so. You got to get him to the right barbershop. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> but the humility that comes with this, she's the shot caller. She and her husband are. I am not, I am not the parent. And, and, and so I need to understand, um, also my role. Mm. But the, on, the, on the flip side, it is interesting to me, some of our colleagues who are Black have said, Katie has demonstrated incredible humility because she actually listens mm. to you. You know, she grew up in, again, with a worldview that her way was universal and standard, that that was the way you did things. Mm-hmm. But the notion now as an adult to say, you know what, your worldview is kind of one among many. Um, it's hard sometimes for for white parents to hear that and to embrace that notion. Mm-hmm. And she has. And so we, we also want the message. This isn't always easy, but I think if you have the right dose of humility, it kind of fits together and works. So well said. Absolutely. I think a lot of folks are going to get some great insight out of this uh, interview. And, I, and you're going to get so much more if you get the book. So Go yeah. get the book. Do right by me. Yeah. Do right by me.org. But I, I know you can find it anywhere else that the books are sold. Yes. And I just want to wrap up with, I love how you, you use the word almost throughout the whole interview and you use it throughout the book and the word is intention. Yeah. That's yes. so important. I think that's what I got really out of the book is just so much intentional. You're intentional on how you wrote the book. You're intentional about how you're raising your child. And I think, intentional in your friendship and that it really exudes uh come out of the book and i think everybody will get that if you get the book so i know we could talk a lot more about this and maybe we should have you on the show again because there's a lot more i could pull out of the book that we, we could talk about but i want to thank well, you for coming it. on the show yeah yeah you guys are just an amazing friendship uh, uh you got so much uh information and education that uh, just goes over my head so <laughs> uh. <laughs> which but you know what you bring it down to the earth down to earth and so for someone like me to be able to read the book and get a lot out of it is it was really a testament to you because i know how educated y'all are and being able to yeah. 
have somebody like me read the book and get a lot out of it is a good thing. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> well, you. Yeah, honestly, I mean, speaking of intention, I mean, it's so clear your intention in developing this podcast. It just, you know, your desire to create information and support, you know, like connecting us all in this community in this way um, to just, again, do right by our children and do right by our families. We just, you know, Tim, thank you so much for including us and, and giving us this opportunity. My pleasure. And my prayer for you and for anybody listening to this is that we can eliminate a lot of this racism, mm -hmm. every, all the racism and all the mm -hmm. divisiveness we've got going on in this, in this country and, and throughout the world. And I, this book's a great step towards that. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on the show again, ladies. I appreciate it. All right. You take thank care. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Great interview with Val and Katie. Man, I just love talking with them. It's such a cool topic and an amazing book. Highly recommend you go get it. Do Right By Me. And you can get it at dorightbyme.org. I'll put links in the show notes for you to go get it. You cannot go wrong by getting this book, even if you are considering transracial adoption or or don't know if you want to do it. I think this will be eye-opening for you to consider it and know how to handle it better. So I really appreciate them coming on to the show. It was an, a great interview. And if you want to get the show notes, go to infantadoptionguide.com. And while you're there, at the top of the page, you'll see the Facebook support group link. Go there if you want to join us, um, several thousand people in that Facebook group, uh, just supporting each other, asking questions, getting feedback, and just learning about infant adoption. So it's a great place to go find other people like you who are going on this adventure to build your family through adoption. So until next time, you are in my prayers as you go on the journey to adopt. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care and God bless. Thanks for listening to my dad.